flu does many, many things. It's more than just debt collections. Unlike most state courts where restitution is ordered based on the defendant's financial ability to pay, it's not the case in federal court. You're listening to Joe Minney, an assistant United States attorney with the Asset Recovery and Financial Litigation Unit for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. The flu units are comprised of paralegals, collection, financial litigation technicians, asset investigators, and, and attorneys. And they're responsible for collecting both civil and criminal debts owed to the United States government. In this episode, we discuss the role of the Financial Litigation Unit, otherwise known as the flu, how the flu collects on various federal judgments, and what assets and income that the flu can collect. He's an assistant U.S. attorney with the Asset Recovery and Financial Litigation Unit for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Joe Minnie, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thank you, Robert. It's my pleasure. It's, it's nice to be here. Thank you so much for taking your time out of your schedule to uh, talk about financial litigation. Since you are being interviewed right now, uh, my understanding is you are making statements that are uh, not on behalf of the U.S. Attorney's Office. Would that be correct? That's correct. You are an assistant United States attorney. What compelled you to become a lawyer? Well, quite frankly, Robert, I did not want to become an accountant. I was an accounting major undergrad, and I just felt that was not a career path for me. So I was always had an interest in helping people and in public service. And I liked a job that has challenges, and I didn't want to work doing the same thing every day, and it dawned upon me that I did well with my business law courses in, in, in undergrad, and I took an interest in the law and then eventually law enforcement. So how did you decide to join the U.S. Attorney's Office? I was a student intern uh, with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia, where I'm working at today, uh, and I became a summer intern with the Department of Justice. And I felt that this is the place where I wanted to be. And like I said, I had an, always had an interest in law enforcement. So once I saw what the Department of Justice did and the U.S. Attorney's Office, what they did, I just thought it was a natural fit. It was something – it's a place where I wanted to be. There were so many interesting cases that the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office handles – Anything from theft from mail to drug cases to, to mob cases, uh, it, the, the work is challenging and it's so interesting. I think it's, it's, it's one of the best jobs an attorney can have as an assistant U.S. attorney. You're in the Asset Recovery and Financial Litigation Unit, and the Financial Litigation Unit is FLU, F-L-U for short. What is FLU? The FLU stands for Financial Litigation Unit which is the collection arm of the United States Attorney's Offices throughout the country. The flu units are comprised of paralegals, collection, financial litigation technicians, asset investigators, and, and attorneys. And they're responsible for collecting both civil and criminal debts owed to the United States government. They collect civil debts in student loan cases, 
small business loan cases, but most importantly, they're charged with collecting debts that are imposed in criminal cases, such as criminal fines and restitution. The duty of the, of the financial litigation unit, the FLU, is to ensure that, that defendants pay their judgments, their court order, and their court-ordered impositions, um, in particular in criminal cases, because it's part of the, of the criminal sentence, and we want to make sure that victims are compensated to the fullest extent possible. FLU does many, many things. It's more than just debt collection, so it's nothing really like a debt collection agency. It, it, uh, the work they do is more than just uh, sending dunning letters out to delinquent debtors to get them to pay. The attorneys and the non-attorney staff of the units uh, are charged with, they have their own responsibility in the office. They are experts in the area of work that they do. And they were granted broad authority under federal law to collect debts owed to the government. Not only does, does the flu staff monitor for payment compliance, but they are required to and they take, they are authorized to take collection action when necessary. We can execute against property. We can garnish wages, bank accounts, retirement accounts. We can file other motions with the court to compel compliance with payment. We can file civil complaints to recover fraudulent transfers of property by our defendants. We record liens against the defendants. But most importantly, on a day-to-day -day basis, the flu staff conducts financial investigations uh, in their cases to locate and identify property that belongs to the defendant to make sure that they pay their judgments. They verify the defendant's financial condition and ability to pay to make sure that they're paying what they can. And they do even a lot more than that. Uh, they reveal lots of financial information for the defendant. They, they review financial statements, tax returns, bank statements, credit reports. They search databases. And in part of their investigations, they search various databases. They issue subpoenas to third parties. They can even take depositions of the defendants and third parties. So it's a broad range of work to make sure that the defendants, in particular the criminal defendants, pay their court-ordered impositions. Let's use a Ponzi scheme for an example, okay? Okay. You have an individual who either pleads guilty or is found guilty, and the judge says, you now owe a million dollars, judgment bangs the gavel, the guy goes to prison for a couple years, and now you have a $1 million judgment against this guy, this defendant. What assets can be forfeited in a situation under a criminal judgment? Is is like the Social Security not is not touchable, but maybe his his pension plan is? What's at play? The one thing is I want to make clear here too is that forfeiture is a separate way that we obtain property of a defendant. We don't necessarily do forfeiture work, but what we do is we are a judgment creditor and we collect against the defendant's property. So we don't necessarily forfeit property in that in a forfeiture context. That's a whole different set of rules. That's for a different program, a different show. But we can use various remedies and procedures under federal and state law to collect against the defendant's property. We use garnishment. We use liens. We use uh, execution, levy upon property. In certain respects, actually, what the flu does has a broader range of enforcement than forfeiture because forfeiture in a lot of instances can be only limited to the proceeds the defendant obtained to the crime or the property that was used in the crime. So what that means is that the flu staff, when the judge bangs that gavel and orders a million dollars in restitution, is that we can get 
almost go after and get, collect against almost anything that the defendant owns. That's real property, personal property, and intangible property, future interests in property. And under federal law for criminal cases, Congress has given criminal defendants very little what we call property exemptions, which is that means property that we can't touch. It's, it's reserved for the defendant. We use the Internal Revenue Code exemptions in criminal cases, and they really limit what property the defendant can protect from our collection actions. We even go after retirement accounts that are otherwise protect, uh, protected under the ERISA statute. We can't do that for forfeiture or civil collections, uh, for civil judgments. And retirement accounts on the criminal collection side are very important because they usually involve big money. But what happens in your example is that once the judge bangs the gavel and orders restitution, hopefully we're already involved, the flu staff is already involved in the case. So we have a pretty good idea of the defendant's assets and liabilities and overall financial situation. And once the judge bangs the gavel, we hopefully can go after assets to to pay restitution to the victims. I had a case where we had a return preparer. She was probably pretty young, maybe late 20s. And she was part of a scheme to defraud the Internal Revenue Service. And there was a judgment. Part of that judgment is part of conspiracy. As part of conspiracy, you're responsible for the whole enchilada, right? And so uh, I did not realize that her, she had like maybe less than $100,000, but still it's a substantial amount of money in her IRA. The flu unit here locally uh, told me that they were taking. I, I didn't realize that they could actually even do that. I thought it was more of a of a situation where it's like, oh, okay, you know, they owe us money, pay three hundred dollars a month for the rest of your life, and there you go. But evidently, they were they they're a little more aggressive than just standing around waiting for payment. And I've been doing this for over twenty two years now. The job has really changed. And when I first started, this was unheard of. And how can we go after retirement accounts that? Uh, you know, ERISA stands in the way, and then we we slowly but surely won that battle in the courts, and we have to date very favorable decisions in the criminal collection context that the retirement accounts are subject to payment for restitution and criminal fines. And even today, a lot of folks, even in the U.S. Attorney's Office, the prosecutors, defense attorneys, and maybe perhaps some judges aren't fully aware of our ability to do that, and it's, it's a pretty strong tool that we have. Our tools are strong for criminal collection so that the U.S. government gets a lien over all of the defendant's property, real or personal, an interest in property. So and it's like an IRS tax lien. So it's a broad net that's cast out there so that most property that the defendant owns or, or will own is subject to payment for restitution and fines imposed in the criminal case. When a defendant goes through the court process they they meet with a probation officer is that information turned over to you guys later on or is that something that you have to independently determine where the assets are at no the flu staff is considered part of the prosecution team and the flu staff is entitled and we do review prior to sentencing in a lot of cases the pre-sentence report and we can get other information such as financial statements from defendants prior to sentencing so we know where where the case stands and what assets may be out there uh, that haven't actually been perhaps disclosed to probation or uh, the defendant may be coming into that uh, weren't known to the prosecutor and perhaps the probation at the time that the report is prepared, but going into sentencing. 
So we have that information and we should be able to use it. This has been one of the great changes uh, or changing the focus of, of the work that the flu does over the years is that, as you was you know, correctly said, is that it uh, used to be, and when I first started, was that we took the judgments, the judgment forms uh, when the defendant was sentenced, and we would collect starting at that point. Whatever was there was there. And then, you know, say within the last five or 10 years, uh, our thinking has changed nationally, is that that's not perhaps the best way to approach financial enforcement, especially for restitution in criminal cases, because once you get to sentencing or after sentencing, most of the time those assets are gone. The earlier, the better. The financial litigation unit personnel, the flu attorneys, and the other staff members of the flu, they need to, they and they have plans in each U.S. attorney's offices to actually get involved with the prosecutor and the case agent as early as possible in the case. may not necessarily be every case that comes along but cases where there are certain types of victims, large amounts of restitution, perhaps vulnerable victims, or where there's suspicion that the defendant may have hidden assets you know, when they come in and try to maybe negotiate a plea agreement. And that's when the financial litigation staff comes in to work all that stuff out with the prosecutor and the case agent to get a full understanding and the asset forfeiture staff as well uh, that's considered part of the team. So that pre-judgment, pre-sentencing, we are able to actually have a full handle on the defendant's financial situation and what assets are available out there for both restitution, fines, and forfeiture purposes. The important task of the U.S. Attorney's Office, the prosecution team, prior to sentencing is essentially to find out what the assets are, sort them out, and then figure out how they're going to be best be used at the time of sentencing. How does forensic accounting play into the flu? Forensic accounting does not play as big of a part with the flu staff on a regular basis than it does with the separate asset forfeiture staff. But there are times when the when a financial forensic accountant is required uh, to assist the flu to determine the defendant's assets, to trace the disposition of certain property. We have inside, in-house a forensic account that's assigned to the forfeiture staff, but on occasion we've we've tapped into that resource to help us show that to sustain our belief that the defendant was hiding income or other money, let's say, in third-party accounts. So the forensic accountant is handy to help figure out what the defendant did with a particular asset, trace and to trace and locate proceeds, and then enables us, after we review the, the pertinent information prepared by the, the accountant, to take necessary action, perhaps recover that asset. And just as important, because of the role of the, the forensic accountant, we may have a formal report. And we have an individual that's prepared to testify in court if we have to go to a hearing to show that the asset actually belongs for criminal collection purposes. Yeah, I can foresee some defendants trying to hide the asset or already hid the asset before sentencing in a nominee situation like a girlfriend or a mom or dad or, you know, or a shell corporation, that type of thing where you have to figure out. trust. Yes. And because the flu has access to all of these financial records, we can go to the financial accountant and say, or the financial accountant comes back to us and tells us, this is what he, he needs or she needs. I need these records. I need, you know, I looked at this account, subpoena this for us. Or we have tax returns already available to us in our file. The forensic accountant in our office has an IRS background. He, he was a revenue officer for years. And so he can pick apart a tax return and tell us, give us leads, and um, we can follow those leads 
subpoena additional records, perhaps interview witnesses, and and that's how the financial investigation progresses. So they do play a very important role because it's it's a type of work that the regular flu staff and perhaps even our financial investigator, who's a retired Internal Revenue Service Criminal Investigation Division supervisor. I mean, she's really good at this stuff, but there's a certain point where we need to turn this stuff over to the the forensic accountant because we need the the expertise that that person can provide us. We talked a little bit about this, but how has the flu changed over the last decade? It's changed dramatically. The way I look at it is that big time. It's changed big time. There's a greater focus on restitution today than there ever was, especially since I started back in 1998 with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Back then, the flu staff collected restitution owed to, say, a government agency and criminal fines. And we didn't start collection until the defendant was sentenced. Now, because uh, things changed when I first came on board at that time, because there was a new statute enacted uh, called the Mandatory Victim Restitution Act. This changed the whole framework and layout, how we, the, the U.S. attorney, prosecutors, and the courts approach restitution. Unlike most state courts where restitution is ordered based on the defendant's financial ability to pay, it's not the case in federal court. Under federal law now, for most of our cases, there's no discretion. The court must order restitution in the full amount of the victim's losses, regardless of the defendant's ability to pay. So we may have, at times, a lot of uncollectible hollow judgments, restitution judgments, on our books. But at the same time, this gives victims what they need, uh, and that is the right to receive full compensation for their losses. And then several years ago, Congress enacted the Crime Victims' Rights Act, and that puts many obligations on prosecutors and the U.S. Attorney's Office, but in particular with the flu unit and the flu attorneys, is that Congress gave victims under the CVRA, the Crime Victims' Rights Act, Congress gave victims the right to receive restitution in a timely manner. So because of these statutory requirements, the flu staff now is really probably 90% of the caseload is all restitution cases and mainly restitution to private victims, which we didn't do before when I started years ago. So that has greatly increased our work and increased the focus of our work. Our work also has, say, within the last five years or so, changed drastically because uh, Washington now has told us that we are flu staff are to work with the prosecutors early on in the cases, and that if we get involved at sentencing, perhaps it's too late. So we've developed plans to coordinate and communicate with the forfeiture staff, the prosecutor, and the case agents to be a part of the investigatory, the prosecution team, and to work with prosecutors as experts in restitution, victim issues, and to work with the agents and the forfeiture staff in identifying and locating assets uh, of the defendant. We have a lot of work and we have a lot of more responsibility now these days. So it's not just simply getting a judgment and seeing what we can collect from that judgment or just monitoring payments based on that. We take seriously our efforts that we have to, that we're required to take to enforce these judgments. Uh, like, like I said earlier, is that we are simply not acting as a collection agency where we're sending dumbing letters out, but we actually conduct, in certain cases, complex financial investigations. Uh, we issue subpoenas. We go out and our investigators go out, interview witnesses. 
We review financial records. We do surveillance. And we do all sorts of things to locate property of, of the defendant and, and to see if we can take action to collect against that property. And, and a lot of times, too, collection work simply involves verifying that the defendant doesn't have the ability to pay. And given the enormity of our case sizes, is that we just move on to the next case. What are some of the challenges do you foresee for the next five years for the flu unit? I think the challenges are going to remain is that they're probably going to be the same things. It's keeping up with our caseload to ensure that victims get paid to the fullest extent possible and in, a, and in a timely manner, to make sure that the flu units continue to get involved in the cases early and often. And from my standpoint, at least with my office, is that I like to focus and prioritize victim cases where there are, I would say, special victims, such as child exploitation, child pornography cases, a newer concept is elder fraud cases, where you, cases where you have, we have vulnerable victims. We could put a little special focus, attention, and effort in these cases to get, hopefully, compensation paid to these victims from the defendants who defrauded them. We also have some changes, and, and, and again, this is the dynamic of the, the practice of law, is that the law constantly is evolving and changing, and we're trying to protect ourselves from certain changes in the law where... We have some adverse precedent where a few courts have held that if the court sets a payment plan for a defendant to pay a fine or restitution, the the flu staff, the U.S. Attorney's Office, can't go out and collect against additional property of the defendant. So long as the defendant's paying, we can't touch the defendant's other assets. We keep fighting that battle, and oftentimes we win that battle. Uh, and that we're not restricted. We can go after other property, but we've had some adverse cases, just a few. But, you know, that's something we need to keep an eye on in the next few years to see where the, the, the cases are going in that regard. And hopefully they'll continue to go in our favor. You got my brain thinking as part of my career as an IRS special agent. I really didn't know about the flu unit until a few years ago, just because uh, once we did our investigation, judge says, you know, restitution is X amount. I didn't care. You know, my, my, my job is done. I got something else to do. I'm working on it. I never knew that there was honestly the litigation unit behind the scenes that's ready to pick up the judgment per se and start collecting on assets because I never thought about it afterwards. Because if if I didn't seize it or forfeit it, you know, under money laundering statutes, it wasn't my thought process of oh, there's an extra half a million dollars and let's say in in a 401k fund. I, I, it was, had nothing to do with my case, you know. It just it was like, okay, the guy's got some more wealth to it. I didn't realize that on the back end of things, had I known this, I probably would have made mental notes about it and put it in my report just in case probation officer or the pre-sentence report does not have that information in there because, you know, as well as I do, defendants lie. And they lie to the probation office like anything else. And, and, and it'd be nice to, I don't know, uh, I wish I knew about this earlier in my career is my point. So I guess what I'm trying to say. You're absolutely right. That's because how the focus of the role of the flu and, and the asset forfeiture staff as well, uh, how the focus has changed over the years. You're right. Even prosecutors in our office would just think of the flu unit, if they knew what it was, was just a bunch of nice folks, a bunch of paralegals down on the corner on the third floor you know, or up on the eighth floor. And if they had an issue that came up in their case, perhaps they would know 
to who to talk to. It's just because of the work that they did. They didn't get involved until post judgment. And, and you know, normally prosecutors and even the civil attorneys who get the civil judgments, you know, once they get their judgments, they turn it over to the flu staff. That was their job. They didn't need to be involved anymore. But not necessarily. Now that they know that the the flu, the flu attorneys are experts in not only the collection area, but they they become experts in the area of restitution and victim issues. We're used a lot more. Uh, we go into court with prosecutors and argue at sentencing certain restitution issues. We can help draft indictments. We can file motions before sentencing to to have assets deposited into the registry of the court. Uh, there's a lot of stuff we do to assist the prosecutor in expert capacity. It's a team approach. More and more prosecutors now are, are recognizing the expertise of the flu in this area and are utilizing that expertise. Tell me about a case that you're most proud of or something or a case that made a difference in your career. My career spanned from the Department of Justice Tax Division Civil Section, uh, representing the IRS and federal court, to doing bankruptcy fraud cases with the U.S. Trustee's Office here in Philadelphia for six years. The, the cases that have the most impact on what I've done are the cases that I've worked on at the U.S. Attorney's Office, partly because of the work that I do is is working with victims resti- and collecting restitution, and, and it, you make a difference in these cases. Not to say I didn't make a difference in those other cases with my other positions, but as a prosecutor, I am a prosecutor. I'm a, a criminal division attorney. Um, you get to work criminal cases, and you get to see really in real time, real life, what has happened. And there's really two cases that come to my mind. Uh, one case was a Civil War memorabilia case that involved the fraudulent acquisition of really neat, interesting Civil War artifacts from these unsuspecting victims who were underpaid significantly the value of these, these items. And not only do we have difficulty collecting from restitution from the defendant over the years, but we had found out later in the investigation that the defendant had done some hanky-panky with his stepmother and had acquired over a million dollars, like overnight from her, and proceeded to purchase a house with cash and a brand-new high-end pickup truck and other assets. Although we had a financial investigation ongoing, we ramped up the investigation and pushed the defendant into a situation where we ended up getting all of the victims paid in this case more than $800,000 in restitution with interest because the case had gone on. And these were victims that had waited for years to get paid. And we we got these victims fully compensated, uh, which is not an everyday occurrence in the life of a flu attorney. Uh, and it's just because we, the, the flu paralegal and our, our investigator really made a difference by by staying focused and chasing down assets, chasing down leads. And we were able to force the defendant eventually into a position where he received a significant inheritance from his stepmother. And we litigated against the stepmother's estate, and we were able to get a payment of probably over $800,000 in a lump sum. So that was a case that really comes to my mind is that our staff did a heck of a job and it, we made a difference. But another case in which actually I was a forfeiture attorney, a flu attorney, and a prosecutor was a money laundering case again, uh, involving a small company, family-owned business that was defrauded by the owner's best friend who played the role of, for years of an in-house bookkeeper. 
who the two owners of the company were not aware of what was going on and that he had embezzled well over a million dollars over this period of time, totally unsuspected. And the case went to trial. And to see the victims, the company owners sitting there in the courtroom every day, seeing them break down on the witness stand, you know, in tears, explaining to the judge how this defendant destroyed, and to the jury, how this defendant destroyed their lives, not only and not only their business. You make a difference. And when the guilty verdict came down, we had two grown men crying. The prosecutor and I had two grown men crying in our arms, uh, and, and we're just so thankful and appreciative of our efforts. And now the case is still ongoing. Uh, we just had the conviction affirmed on appeal, so now we are really gearing up to hopefully collect and get some money back to this victim company. Are there any resources or training that have helped you on your journey? Oh, boy. (laughs) The Department of Justice has an excellent, excellent training center in Columbia, South Carolina, called the National Advocacy Center. It's a top-notch facility, and I've benefited greatly from the number of courses that I've taken there over the years as, as a participant and the number of courses over the years in which I've taught there. Uh, and I walk away with no regrets on any of the courses, and they've been helpful in, in every way, every sense of the way. Word. Nickname of that's called a NAC, N-A-C, right? Yeah, NAC, correct. Yes. When I was in the, walking through the halls of the U.S. Attorney's Office, they would say, yeah, I'm going to the NAC for a week. I was like, okay. And they, yep, Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, and sometimes it was a smile, and sometimes it was a frown, depending on, uh, I guess, <laughs> if they had a lot to do when they come back. But yes, I've heard a lot, quite a bit about the NAC. I always seem to go down there in August when it's 90-degree weather and 90% humidity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's uh, Columbia is, is Columbia. That's all I can say. And we're talking about Columbia, South Carolina, not Columbia, you know, the foreign country, of course. Um, would you have done anything differently in your career path? If I didn't become a lawyer, I certainly would not have become an accountant. No offense to the accountants in your audience, but it was not my cup of tea. I knew that I... In, in business school, I knew I did not want to be an accountant. I think if I did not become a lawyer, I probably would have started in the military and maybe become an airline pilot. Very nice. You ready for the final four questions? Any follow-up questions, just fire away. Final four questions. What is your biggest motivation now? My biggest motivation now is to get my work done and to make sure that my staff is properly trained. They're knowledgeable about their work and to get our work done. Uh, Not that I'm ready for retirement right now, but I've been doing this for a number of years. And I just want to make sure that the torch is passed. And when that day should come, that because there is some longevity with our staff. It's a U.S. attorney's office is a great place to work. And I just want to make sure the other folks there, you know, when I'm no longer there, that, that everything's fine. Everything will go on. It seems for the U.S. attorney's offices in particular that I know of, the support staff that stay there forever, usually the attorneys do, but there's some turnover because attorneys usually go to the private sector for the bigger, better deal. Uh, but the support staff typically stick around for decades, for sure. We, Our office, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, we are uh, – there's been some change over the last few years, but we've been traditionally known as a very top-heavy office where we have many, many experienced older career prosecutors. Uh, and we have a number of support staff that are that are the same. I have 
three people in the flu unit right now that have been there more than 15 years. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? Yeah, that, that's a tough one. Besides reading an occasional Grish, Grisham novel sitting on the, the beach at the Jersey Shore, uh, probably To Kill a Mockingbird. I thought that was a, a, a you know a, a great book, a great story. The movie itself also wasn't too bad, but uh, it, it's just the practice of law, society, racial relations, and how things happened back then. Uh, it, it made it, 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 it not that it affected me, but it made me think. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months that's less than $100 that you enjoyed or made your job easier. If it's good enough for Joe Manny, it's good enough for the world. What would that be? <laughs> you mean my COVID spending, I guess, during the last year? Um, we are in a telework status, and during telework status, we were just because of normal, they cycled out our old and cycled in new laptops. Uh, unfortunately, the new laptops, as nice as they are, the screens are too small. And as I'm getting older, my eyes aren't getting any better. So I, I made the purchase of my own monitor. And it was under $100, thanks to Staples. And it has actually made my work at home a lot easier. If you had to do something else, if you got fired today, what would you be doing? That's a good one. Like I said, if I had a different career path, a different career choice, maybe an airline pilot. I'm too late in my career to start that now. But um, I like to cook. My wife has has dreaming of opening up a restaurant. And of course, sure, I'm the one that has to do all the hard work. Uh, She would sit in the front of the house and welcome guests. You know, I don't think about that. Uh, You know, if I have to walk away from the job at this point in my career, I may go fishing. That's about it until I figure out what I really want to (laughs) do. What kind of restaurant would be opened up? What would be your specialty? Uh, I don't know. Probably the simplest, easiest thing to to manage and cook. Um, My wife likes my Italian cooking, you know, maybe an Italian type restaurant. I don't know. It was, you know, it's a dream that she has. It's a dream that I don't have. I'd rather be sitting on the pier fishing rather than working in the restaurant, you know, a block away from the pier. Got it. Completely understand. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for the service to our country and to your community. And best wishes for you at the uh, at the flu. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.